This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner, and it is the final Wednesday of the month, and that means it's mailbag day. And here we have our July 2016 mailbag. We've been doing these hmm, five, six, seven, eight, eight, nine months. I hope you enjoyed as much as I do. I love seeing your questions, seeing what you're thinking, what you're wondering about, doing my best to provide a capital F foolish answer. I can't always say it's a comprehensive answer. We don't often have enough time in this show to go really deep with some of the questions that I'm asked. And certainly, I can't answer every question that is sent to us. I try to answer the ones that are most relevant and most interesting or fun to talk about for this show. And thank you once again for a nice stuffed mailbag that I look forward to cutting through as we speak. In fact, let's get it started right away this week with one from Jordan Parcel. Jordan, you wrote, Hi, David. Thank you for all of your help and everything you do for the average investor. I love hearing it all. I have not missed one of your podcasts yet. Okay, I need to just pause it right there. Jordan, you rock. Back to your text. Specifically, I enjoy hearing about your big winners and losers, but I find it hard to judge how I'm doing with my investments. I've been following The Fool for about four years, and investing for three. My goal has been to accomplish higher returns than the S&P, because if I can't beat that, I ought to be fully invested in ETFs. With your team's help, knock on wood, my portfolio has held up pretty well against the S&P, but I was wondering if you had a better guideline to judge my performance. Thanks, Jordan Parcel. Or maybe Parcel. Although, the former coach of the New York Giants and New England Patriots used an extra L when he he went by Bill Parcell, so I'm still thinking Jordan. I've got your name nailed. Okay, so you've asked you've actually asked a few questions. First of all, you said you've been following the fool for four years and investing for three. That's not a question, but I want to say good job. So it sounds to me like you were following along for a whole year before you started investing, and that says a really good thing to me about your taking the time to educate yourself and to think about all this, maybe even to save scrap some money together to invest, and then you got started. So, congratulations and good for you. So, there are really two threads that I want to pull out of your question. The first is just beating the S&P 500. That's what you've described in your note, Jordan. You said, hey, I'm doing this because if I'm not going to be beating the market, the S&P 500, then I might as well be in ETFs. And I want to reassert that that is, in fact, the goal of at least Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor services that I work on, certainly Motley Fool Supernova as well. Not every service for every fool is designed to beat the market necessarily. Some of our members, especially older members, don't care as much about beating the market as they do preserving their capital. And so you have popular services like Jeff Fisher's Motley Fool Pro, which is really there to help people try to not lose money. Uh, even though it also has a good record of beating the market. So, uh, so I do want to just mention that not everybody has this same goal. But for at least for me, David Gardner and my brother Tom, and the books that we started The Motley Fool with, 1996 bestseller, The Motley Fool Investment Guide, from the beginning pretty much, we've said, in fact, the very first day we launched on AOL, August 4th of 1994, we said, we think you should be trying to beat the market. Otherwise, yeah, buy an index fund. And so follow along with us and watch us. We think we can beat the market. 
And I'm happy to say, from that day forward, we pretty much have been beating the market. And I don't think it's that hard a thing to do, really. In a world in which so many people are just trying to mail it in, they're just giving their funds over to somebody else who's managing them, often charging them 1% or 2% just to replicate the market's averages, but delivers that person, unfortunately, a sub-market return because of the fees of 1% or 2%. So, if we can get around that and do it ourselves, and that's what you're talking about, Jordan, then I say, bully to us, and it's worth going for. And and I've certainly been well-rewarded in my life for investing in stocks directly. So, I do want to reassert that that is the goal. And so, if you're a new listener to Rule Breaker Investing this week, if you've just found our podcast, or The Motley Fool, I hope you know that most of us, we think, should be invested to start with in index funds. And just specifically, how about just the S&P 500 index fund? Or Vanguard has one called the Total Market Index Fund, Vanguard Total Market. We like Vanguard because they are the Walmart of the industry. They have the widest selection and the lowest prices. And really, the fees that you pay for funds are what affects so much your returns over long periods of time. So, darn it, if you can't beat them, join them, just go ahead and take the index fund and and have fun with the rest of your life. But I think Rule Breaker Investing, in particular, appeals not just the podcast, but the service to people who want to do better than average. And the benefits of doing better than average are very substantial, especially when measured over time. If you and I can just exceed the S&P 500's return by 1% annualized, it might not sound like much after one year. But take out a calculator and do the math, and check out the difference between an 11% annualized return over 25 years versus a 10% annualized return. Now, I'm not doing it right now, because I'm doing mailbag. I don't have my calculator in front of me. But it's not that hard to do with a calculator, and you'll see it's very substantial. Just a 1 percentage point difference. And I'm happy to say, we've managed to achieve more than that in services like Motley Fool Stock Advisor. So, I just want to reassert, that's why we do what we do most of the time for many of our members who are looking for that, even if not everybody in life is looking for that. And then the one other thread I wanted to speak to before we move on is just how do you judge yourself and score yourself? And and for me I still haven't found a better way than something as simple as using um, anything from Quicken where you can type in your stocks at the Motley Fool we have a scorecard tool you can use a spreadsheet um, you you can no doubt search the internet for a simple spreadsheet a template that you could use and just keep track of how you're doing with each stock I like to when I buy a stock I type in the ticker symbol on the next sell over I type in the price that I paid for it and I usually include the commission there and then on the next sell over the next column of my spreadsheet I'll just go ahead and indicate where the S&P 500 was that day and then I have another couple cells where I show the percentage gain in my stock or loss that happens too sometimes and then the S&P 500 by comparison, and I net those out. And then at the bottom, and I hope this doesn't sound too hard, I don't do that much buying and selling, so it's not that hard for me, Um, but I would encourage you to track not just stock by stock, but the overall portfolio, of course. And if all that sounds like too much work, how about just note the amount of money that your brokerage account is starts at on January 1st of each year, and then the amount that it closes at, and then do just tag it against the S&P 500. That's still, to me, the best way to judge your performance. Of course, if you're investing in a more focused way, like you're just buying oil stocks or something, that you should, I guess you should be comparing yourself to an oil sector fund. So, make sure you're picking the right benchmark. But for most of us at The Motley Fool, the S&P 500 does just fine. Okay, and now for a horse of a completely different color. Next one up is Jerry Lynch. Jerry, you wrote, "Dear Dave, would you please describe the Motley Fool's cost-benefit analysis regarding the decision up to this time not to take your organization into the IPO marketplace?" When I first read that from Jerry, I was like, "Is he saying we should be covering IPOs more? Like we're not in the IPO marketplace for a newsletter covering IPOs?" Nope. 
Jerry, as it turns out, as it goes on, he's wondering why we don't go public as a company, The Motley Fool. When you describe keeping score of all The Motley Fool projects, I always ask myself, Jerry writes, why don't why won't Dave and Tom make that ultimate next step to play in the big league of the stock market? My question is motivated by my sense that The Motley Fool is at an exciting point in their evolution where your media empire, that's very flattering for you to say, use that phrase, can jump to an all-new level of international presence. Yet, I'm concerned this next rule-breaking recreation cannot happen without a major infusion of public financing. Goes on a little bit from there. Thank you for your work, Jerry Lynch. Okay, Jerry, thanks for the question. I will speak to this briefly, but it's a fun question. So, yes, we are in our 23rd year of being a private company. We've been private from the get-go. Um, we've taken in a lot of venture capital over the years, especially in the first 10 years of our company. And then in the succeeding 10 years, we spent a lot of time paying back out um, our venture capitalists in order to remain a private company. We love being a private company. Um, we also are really glad that there are public companies. Otherwise, we wouldn't have much of a stock market for you and me to be invested in and find great companies. I would love for The Motley Fool one day, not necessarily to be a public company or not, but specifically to be a great company. I think we still have a lot of work to do in that regard, but that's kind of what Tom and I are building together and what we've been building with the help of now about 350 others who are full-time employees at The Motley Fool. Um, we would be a different entity if we were public. I don't think we would be quite as fun a place to work. It'd be a little bit more intense around here. We're not complacent at all, but I think there's some really nice benefits to being a private company. Uh, one benefit we don't have is regular access to capital, which is what you gain when you become a public company. You could do, well, you first of all, you float some stock and take in some money right there, but you could also do secondary offerings and other things. You also increase your visibility a lot. Jerry, you asked specifically in regards to our international Growth opportunity. And you're right, if we received a substantial infusion of capital, we could definitely spread foolishness faster, harder, deeper, broader than we are today. As it is, as you're hearing this podcast, I pre taped this about a week ahead of time because I'm out visiting Motley Fool Singapore and Motley Fool Australia. So I think I'm having a really good time as you hear this. And it's certainly a little bit of entrepreneurial pride for me to think that the Motley Fool is now in those countries and in Canada and the UK, where we've been for a long time, Germany recently. So we're going to continue expanding even with the little bit of capital that we have. Um, it does keep you more focused when you have less capital, and you generally have to be more disciplined. So, I think that there can be strengths to that as well. Anyway, uh, don't expect ticker symbol F-O-O-L to show up anytime soon. At the same time, I don't expect anybody else is ever going to take that ticker symbol, but we'll have to see. And next one up is from my friend Troy Springer. I got to know Troy at the University of Richmond, where I was leader in residence at the Jepson School of Leadership Studies over the past year. And Troy, I think you were a ROTC, so I know that you have some military background, but you've also been a very faithful podcast listener, and it was a pleasure to shake hands with you in Richmond. Troy, you're asking here, you write, I've been meaning to get this question out for some time now. What is your favorite way to get into a position? For example, you write, I've recently gotten into the habit of placing good till cancelled limit orders on stocks I like. A lot of times, I'll buy a stock at its market price, and then the next day, it'll be down something like 2%. And I'll say to myself, oh man, I should have been a little more patient. I know it's impossible to predict where the market will go and time the market, but I think being able to save a little when you enter a position is valuable. Plus, by placing such limit orders, I don't have to pull out my phone all the time and check the price of a few stocks. 
You go on, Motley Fool recommendations don't seem to give too much insight into the moment of the actual transaction. Even Best Buys now seem to be not especially time-bound. How would a fool save a bit on his transactions, aside from commissions? Well, that's a great question. And let me start by saying that there isn't any one approach here. So, I'm going to tell you what I do and how I think about it. But you might well do this better than I do, because frankly, I don't think I'm particularly good at picking prices or picking entry points for stocks or picking the right time of day or having the right approach. So, Troy, here's what I do. I just place market orders. I remember when I was an earlier David Gardner, somewhere like about 30 years younger David Gardner, so I'm around 20 years old at the time, I would place limit orders at that point. I felt like, and I was often buying smaller cap companies, and the smaller cap the company, the more illiquid the stock, the more it's worth placing limit orders to ensure you get a price that you want. But back in those days, that was more consistently how I bought stocks, and it was a less liquid market, much lower volumes than we see today. There wasn't the spreads were much wider, so the difference between the asking price and the offer price were substantial. And so you know, you'd have to buy a stock at I don't know twenty and a half, and a second later it would be basically bid at twenty. In other words, you would have paid up a half a dollar just to buy that stock. Uh, so that was again in more illiquid stocks in a more illiquid time. These days, I don't really approach the markets that way, and there's a lot more liquidity. Uh, the spreads between the bid and the ask are more like a cent. Sometimes they're less than that, and so I don't really find it that important for me to try to put in a limit order. Also, how many times, and it happened enough times that I I remember, how many times did I put in a limit order? The stock never quite crested down to that price that I wanted, and I never got that stock. And here's the bad news. When it never did go back down to that price that I wanted, that means it went up from there. And I missed a winning stock because I was trying to grab a couple pennies here or there. And so I decided, for me as an investor, I'm not going to worry or be too intense about when I buy a stock or what price I buy the stock at. I'm going to place a market order when I'm ready. It will fill instantaneously from that point, and I will be a part owner of that company. So that's my approach. But I'm the person who is convinced that within a day or two of whenever I buy a stock, it will be lower the next day. And whenever I sell a stock, and I don't know how this happens, it goes up the very next day. And so, I'm just at peace with the idea that I'm never going to get it right. But here's the good news. It's so short-term, it's so meaningless a year or two or three later, that I don't think it's that worth it. Now, all that said, there are many different approaches here. Um, and especially if you're starting out as an investor, and commissions can be a substantial chunk sometimes of your of your purchases, maybe you do want to pick your prices. And if you're a more precise person or exactitude matters to you, maybe you want your order to fill right at the price that you have predetermined if the stock hits that price. So I completely understand it. I'll close by mentioning that we've talked a lot over the years about just buying stocks in thirds. So this is something that the Motley Fool has certainly popularized, the idea that rather than go all in with your full position right away, sometimes we found it's smarter to parcel it out, to divide it, let's say, into three pieces and buy your first third right now. Don't worry about whether it's high or low, don't sweat your limit orders, just get invested, get your feet wet, become a part owner of that stock with one third of your position. And then perhaps a month from now, buy your next third and a month after that, fill out your final third. And why does this work and why do we recommend this approach? Well, I think it's for this reason. 
it's because for a lot of us, we're gun shy. We don't actually even want to buy. It feels all or nothing. And so sometimes we wait or we put in a limit order that's not even realistic and we never get invested or we wait too long to invest. So I think for a lot of people, when you make it piecemeal and you just give yourself an opportunity to get your feet wet and start with the investment, um, you put yourself in a good mental place. Because here's the trick from that point forward, right? You've already bought a third. So now, if the stock goes up from there, you can say, well, darn it, I'm awfully glad I bought some that day, that I had the courage to step in and bought some. And it is up some, so I'm already making money, and I like the company, and I'm already making money, so I'll buy the rest now or in future. Right? On the other hand, and here's the mental trick, if the stock has gone down from there, what are you saying? You're saying something like this. Well, I did buy some, but here's the good news. It's down, and I still have two-thirds of the position left to buy, so here I am able at on sale at a discount to get what I was paying up for a little bit earlier and I still have more money off the table than on so now I'm going to buy happily and confidently at these prices. So if you followed me through with that example Troy and everybody else listening, you'll see that I think it's a fun mental trick we can play on ourselves to get invested. Uh, I will close by saying that there are documented studies that show the longer you wait to buy, the less well, you will perform overall. So, dollar cost averaging, which is kind of what I just described, or buying in thirds, if you space it out over time and you do that systematically and you track the results, 30 years later, you're going to find that more often than not, you would have had more money if you did not do that. And why is that? Well, that's because the stock market on average tends to rise over the course of time 10% a year. So, with every passing day or month, you're paying a little bit of an opportunity cost waiting to put your money into the market. Certainly, it feels great when the market one year out of three declines and you'd waited. That feels great, but two years out of three, it keeps going up. So, studies will show that dollar cost averaging is actually less efficient for long term returns, but for a lot of us humans as we are, it's more emotionally efficient. Sometimes it gets us off our duff, gets us moving to start practicing buying in thirds. And if that helps you, then that's another way to enter a position as well. Always more to think about these subjects than I can possibly cover, but I hope that was that was pretty good. And by the way, Troy, you do mention being a gamer at the end of your note. I didn't read that. And you said, biggest problem with playing more board games is getting enough people around the table. I will mention on a side note that I'm delighted by the trend that we're seeing as gamers these days, that more and more great board games are coming out as apps, and often very well-designed same components or cards or look of the game. Sometimes it's keeping score for you in a way you don't have to with a board game in front of you. A recent outstanding release. This is one of the more complicated games. This is not for new gamers, but one of my favorite games called Twilight Struggle, one of the five highest rated games of all time on Board Game Geek, my second favorite website. Uh, Twilight Struggle just came out as a beautiful app for the iPad, and it's a three-hour game that's hard to find somebody to play against sometimes for the very reason that we're all very busy. But when you're just kind of playing against the AI, you can really enjoy the game, and I have uh, over the course of this summer. So a little plug there for for serious gamers for the Twilight Struggle app. Before we go on to the next. If you've tried to get a mortgage, you know how frustrating the process is and how you seem to spend hours and hours on paperwork. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's fast, it's powerful, and it's completely online. Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to 
your unique financial situation. It's a quick online process you can manage right from your couch. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com/fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Next one up, this is number four. This month, we're going to have a shorter number. I think I'm going longer and deeper on a shorter number of mailbag questions this month. This one comes from Leonardo Pozaban. And Leonardo, you write me thus. So, you spent a full podcast talking about your love for board games and whether they're good to teach people about investing. My question is about one particular game I remember that was invented specifically for that. I'm talking about Cash Flow, created by the rich dad guy Robert Kiyosaki. Have you tried it and why did it not make your list? Okay, couple things there. First of all, Leonardo, um, I'm going to say to uh, Mr. Kiyosaki's credit, um, he generously sent me a gratis copy of his game. This is probably about 10 years ago. The actual name of the game is Cash Flow 101. Cash Flow is all one word in the title. So you can look it up on Board Game Geek and you can see uh, the, 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 the page for that game. Um, I will tell you that as a gamer, in my opinion, it is not a very good board game, just from a gaming standpoint. Any lessons that might teach about money, which is the real intent of that game, are aside. If you just look at, you know, how much time do you want to spend playing games in life, and if you have limited time, which games do you want to play? Um, a game that grades out as a 4.9 on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is outstanding. Uh, that is the present rating that that game has. Uh, it, it was it came out in 1996. I'll say since that's about 20 years ago. Board games have advanced in lots of ways since 1996. Um, so I, on the one hand, want to certainly thank again Mr. Kiyosaki for thinking to include the Motley Fool on his comp list for game. He, he sent it saying he knew I loved games. This is again uh, years ago, and so sent me a free copy. At the same time, I, I'd have to say it's not a great board game. Um, and then there's one other thing that I want to mention. Sometimes the subject of rich dad, poor dad comes up, and people say, "What do you guys think about that at the Motley Fool?" I mean, he he has very different advice and thinks about money very differently in some ways than we do. There's certainly some overlap. He's obviously financially concerned. He he certainly prizes home ownership and the use of real estate to create wealth, which we would certainly agree with. Rule breaker investing isn't about real estate, and we're not that real estate focused as a company. But um, but certainly Kiyosaki, that's a big thing for him. That said, um, sometimes he's ventured off away from I think his core subject to start giving things like stock market advice. And in general, these this is very different advice than you're going to hear from the Motley Fool. So because we had had enough people ask us about. Kiyosaki, um, about five or six years ago, he was coming through Washington D.C. with one of his kind of, I think it was called Rich Dad Stock Success Workshop, and so Brian Richards, the very talented editor, now helping run portions of Motley Fool International today, Brian Richards went to that and attended it and covered it uh, for our membership. It's one of the more recommended articles that was that came out in 2011 on the Fool.com site. It had more than a hundred comments, a couple more than a couple hundred recs. And I'll just leave it there by saying the title of the article, and you can Google it if you want to read it, is quote, stock advice so bad it will make you cringe, end quote. That is the title of Brian's article. Okay, just a couple more this month. Uh, next one comes from, oh, look, it's from me. Oh, I wrote myself a question. David, do you see any similarities between Pokemon Go and the book Ready Player One? Well, first of all, 
Great question. I'm glad you asked, David. And yeah, I do. I do actually want to mention a few things about this. Certainly, Pokemon Go has taken the world by storm over these last several weeks. Uh, on a point of extreme nerdiness, I was there day one, downloading it. In fact, on the app it says when you came to the game. So I guess I get small niche geek credit for having the very first day. I think it was July seventh. Is when I joined the game, so I'm not one of those who showed up two weeks later hearing it was a big thing. Um, I am a gamer, as we've established. I do enjoy following games. Um, I've played the game some. It's an okay game. It's more of a phenomenon. It's a worldwide phenomenon. But I did think some about the book Ready Player One, which we've talked about on this podcast. As I think about Pokemon Go, because one clear similarity is that both of them, the real world Pokemon Go, and the not real world. Of Ready Player One, both of them, the whole world is playing a game. Not everybody, but basically one game is dominating culture. And uh, in Ready Player One, it is the game that has been built by the deceased billionaire, uh, the Bill Gates-like figure who's left all his money in an Easter in Easter eggs somewhere around the massively multiplayer online game that everybody's playing on Earth at the time. And Pokemon Go. Has that same dynamic, and I think this makes sense. There are network effects in place in these things, right? Once you hear that all your friends are playing something, well, you're you're a friend too, so you're going to join and you're going to play. And once you start reading that the whole country or the whole world is playing something, then a lot of people who would not have played it start to play it just to be. We're all social creatures, just to be in the game, just to be conversant, to be able to interact, uh, to be relevant. So that's one clear. Similarity between Pokemon Go. In in some ways, it's doing what Ernie Klein, the author of Ready Player One, was conceiving of when he wrote his book some years ago. Now, whether Pokemon Go has long-term viability, whether it has legs, uh, is a separate question. Um, but I, I I clearly see that similarity between them, and I think it's kind of phenomenal in a way that Klein kind of foresaw that that would happen, and you you can see why it would. Uh, a big online game. Uh, with network effects built in, I will say that the game has been fun. Um, I think what's special about it is it was built over the course of really a decade or so by Niantic Labs, which is the Google-owned spinoff. It's it's a separate company that was playing its own game that had built a game like this using things like Google Maps, which have been built up over the years. So a lot of these elements, I think the name of the game was Ingress, that Niantic had developed. So, Pokemon Go was built on the bones of really important innovations that had occurred over the last decade, but added the magic fairy dust of intellectual property that the whole world knew that a lot of people had grown up with. And when you add that in, that's why I think you see something so phenomenally successful relative to what preceded it. So, it will be interesting. I wouldn't be a buyer of Nintendo stock, which had, as of this podcast anyway, more than doubled in just about 10 days, becoming a larger, briefly larger company than Sony. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we should undercredit Nintendo for what it's done. What it's proven is that it has extremely relevant uh, intellectual property. And beyond just Pokemon, certainly we can think about things like Mario and other. Um, Link and Zelda, all of the different Nintendo brands and intellectual property, I think the world has been reminded that these things are sometimes more valuable than we were thinking. So, some of that big run up in Nintendo stock, I think, is just a recognition that probably the world was underpricing that intellectual property until Pokemon Go showed up and maybe temporarily, anyway, caused it to become somewhat 
overpriced as well. And before I go to my last one, I do want to mention a couple extra things about Pokemon Go, which I think are pretty cool. One is the game is largely built on the, of course, the real world map of our lives, but it's built on landmarks that are around you in your neighborhood or wherever the place is that you're visiting. The way to acquire more items is usually to find that piece of sculpture in the airport or that statue that you keep walking past on your way to work and have forgotten it's there. And those are the kinds of landmarks that the game keys into. And another aspect of it, and consonant with that, is the idea that you're out and active in the world around you. You're rewarded for walking 10K with the app open. Uh, you can start doing more stuff. So, what really half of the story of Pokemon Go isn't Pokemon, it's the idea of being out in an augmented reality where you are just, oh, that's who designed that sculpture, or oh, that's how long that plaque has been there. It is awakening you to the world that you're sometimes brushing by all the time and showing you some of the history of it and encouraging you to walk out and look at it and be active. And I think that's pretty cool. And the last one this month comes from my friend Frank DiPietro. Uh, Frank is a longtime Motley Fool member. I've met him at member events over the years. He's at FRDIP on Twitter. Frank, you wrote at RBI Podcast Why would anyone invest in a negative interest rate bond? I understand there are $12 trillion invested in these worldwide. Well, I've gotten a number of questions about these in recent mailbags, and I keep kind of docking it because negative interest rate world is not something I've studied or thought that much about. And I don't really know too much what to do with it either. Other than to point out that interest rates will never go too negative, I don't think, because if they do, people will just start sitting on cash and not at all investing in these kinds of uh, instruments. So, what's happened is that interest rates have gotten so low that when they decline a little bit below that, sometimes they can go below 0%. So, technically, what you're doing is you're giving your money away and you're paying interest to whoever is keeping your money for you, your bank, for them to do that. It's like you're taking out a self storage unit except it's for your cash not for that I don't know that old sofa that you still haven't given away after college so this is a really interesting phenomenon where people are as frank points out there's huge amounts of money that are sitting in things where you're paying a negative interest rate that is you're not getting paid you're paying somebody to hold it now how has this even happened it's primarily happened because central banks have set their interest rates extremely low and what what a central bank, the dominant bank in a country, let's say the Fed in the United States of America, what they're doing is they're saying to banks, we're penalizing you if you try to put your money with us. We want you, you banks, you bankers, we want you active in the world. We want you using Pokemon Go, except with your money, not your iPhone. We want you investing your money. We want you loaning it out. We want you starting businesses. Don't just park your money. If you park your money with us, then you will have to pay us to do so. Wouldn't you rather loan your money and make more money doing that? And in the same way that a central bank is saying that to its domestic banking system, that's kind of what your local bank is saying to you and me as investors. Rather than leave your money with us, where arguably you're getting paid almost nothing or might even have to pay us at some point to do that for you, why don't you go out and use your money? Now, for a lot of us in Rule Breaker Investing, we're using our money in stocks. I think that's a lot better of a place to be, obviously, than in zero interest rate or negative interest rate things. Uh, and good companies that have enough money to pay dividends will have dividend yields sometimes of 2 or 3%. That's like the interest rate you and I are getting paid for just holding that stock 
assuming that stock stays at its same price. Whether it goes up or down, that changes it a little bit. But the point is, you can find pretty good interest rates just for holding good dividend stocks, uh, far better than you'll find from your banks. So I think what our banks are saying to us is, go out and use your money. Let's get the velocity of money moving ahead again. A lot of this is still an overhang of the really horrible conditions of 2008 and 9. And so, certainly, textbook cases will be written about what's happened here now in 2016, when substantial portions of the world, of Europe, for example, are operating with a negative interest rate. It's very rare for this to happen. But again, I don't think it's that sustainable. I'm not heavily worried about it. If it were to go more and more negative, no one will put their money with banks, and so it will not be sustainable for the banking system to do that. But, Frank, you're asking, why do people do this? Because they are doing it. And to try to answer the question briefly here as we close, the answer is that traditionally, bonds are kind of an offset to the stock market. Right? The reason some people think you should be diversified into bonds is because when stocks go down, uh, bonds often don't. And so, if you are a large asset manager and you're trying to park lots of cash different ways and keep yourself kind of safe and balanced, then you have appreciated having something that protects you in the one out of three years where the stock market loses value. So, you can see why maybe if you don't think the market's going to have a good year in the year ahead, if you think that one third probability is popping up in the next 12 months, well, darn it, let's say the stock market goes down 13% over the next year. For you to have just paid 1%, to somebody to for your bond, uh, which sounds crazy. It was a negative interest rate, but you're in that bond instead of in stocks. Then net net, right? You saved yourself 12 percentage points of potentially lost capital. So that's a reason, certainly, that a lot of that, if it is 12 trillion dollars, that a lot of that money is sitting in those things. And part of it is there's just so many assets globally that they can't all go just into the stock market. They need to be lots of different places, and there are all kinds of diversification schemes that people ask of their bankers or that asset managers have to obey anyway. So that explains some more of that money there. I hope this brief meditation on negative interest rates has been a little bit helpful for you as you think through why would the world work that way and what does it mean for me. But I'll admit, the world is very complex and it's something I haven't read that deeply on because I just stay invested in stocks as I have been the last 30 years, as I plan to be the next 30 years. Why don't we close it on that moment here for Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Next week, it's going to be a Donald Trump story. Fool on! As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.